Lord, we thank you for your kindness in giving us your word, allowing us, Lord, to have a a better grasp of who you are and what you've done and how you want us to live. May we now give attention to that word. May we uh, be humble before uh, your Holy Spirit as he teaches us through the preaching of your word. Lord, may we be willing to be taught. Uh, May your Holy Spirit fashion and shape us uh, through your word, Lord, to be conformed to the image of your Son. Allow me as your messenger to simply be the mouthpiece for this text. And Lord, would you be glorified in all that is done in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Many of you have had the opportunity of meeting Mary Mojica. And uh, the Mojicas are a couple that we support in Bolivia. And uh, she is the wife of Matias Mojica. Um, They were here about a year ago when we had our uh, five-year anniversary. And uh, it was great for them to be here and for you guys to meet them. Um, But if you've ever been to Bolivia, you know that if it's time to go shopping in the markets... You want Medi with you. Because in Bolivia, they still barter. They still haggle over prices. And if if you go into the market and you say, well, hey, you know, how much is it? And they'll say, you know, it's $20. Medi's like, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. And she's like, let me talk to them, you know. And she'll come away and it will be like $9 or something like that. You know, she will get them down to where it needs to be. What the ultimate cost actually is. Now, I am some of years old, and many years ago, um, I uh, went out to buy my first car, and I remember going into the dealerships, and back then, years ago, um, you actually had to haggle. You guys remember that? I mean, they, the, 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 the salesman, the, the sticker price, you knew was just way above what you were going to pay. And, and your job was to go in and just to kind of give a low bid, and then the salesman say, oh, no, that's not going to work, and, you, and they come back with something else, and you're like, oh, no, that's not going to work, and then they say, well, let me go talk to my manager and see what I can do. You know he wasn't going to go talk to his manager. He was just going back in a room, and he was coming back, and he says, oh, we can do this. And we're like, no, no, that's it. And so all this haggling is going on. Today, that really doesn't happen. In fact, when I think it was uh, Honda and Toyota really kind of came in, they were just like, all right, this is the price, this is what it is, we're not haggling, that's the way it is. But the goal was to get down to what the actual cost is. And that was the point. You had to kind of work your way. And so today as we look at this text, Mark is looking to answer the question, what is the ultimate cost? What does it look like? But first, we want to do a flyover of the text because it's a little bit confusing at a first read. And so we want to think about the structure of this text, how Mark has actually put this text together. And what we have here is a story within a story. We actually have seen this already in chapter 5 with the story of Jairus and the woman with the issue of blood. There was a story within a story. And what we have here is a story that Mark inserts um, between two things that are taking place. Look, if you would, at Mark 6, verses 12 and 13. So they went out and, and proclaimed that the people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Jesus sent out his disciples on their first missionary trip, two by two. Now, if you notice verse 30... It says, and the apostles, talking about the disciples, 
returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And then in the middle of all that, you have this story of Herod and John. It just seems really strange how it all fits into the context of what's going on. Now, if you remember, J.D. preached on the passage before this. And this was where Jesus goes back to his, his hometown, and how do people respond? They really reject him. Like, isn't he the carpenter's son? I mean, why should we listen to him? And a prophet is without honor in his own country. Right? That was the kind of the, the, the tone. And so the, the point there is, hey, listen, if Jesus can be rejected by his own family, then certainly you're going to be rejected by your own family. Secondly, not only rejected by your family, but these guys go out, and they're supposed to go into towns and villages, and he says right there, there are some people that aren't going to, aren't going to accept you, and you're going to have to shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. But now we get to this last section. What is Mark seeking to do? And I, I kind of drew out this text, okay, just maybe to help you, and I want to take you through the logic of what Mark is doing here. You have this, these two verses where, where the question is, you know, who is this Jesus? And Jesus then is John the Baptist risen from the dead, or he's Elijah, or he's a prophet. And then it, it moves into verse 16 where Herod is convinced that it's John the Baptist. Why? Because he says, he's the one that I beheaded. And then you have this kind of flashback scene and this flashback scene, Herod is like, oh man, yeah, I imprisoned him, and I liked him, and I had him killed. So this, this the structure here is kind of strange in the sense that what we have here then is this flashback taking place in the story. And so, so the proposition, the, the direction, or the theme, or the aim of what Mark is seeking to do is this. Mark wants to challenge his readers now in the course of this gospel. He wants to challenge them now with the serious and costly opportunity that they have to respond to the gospel. Now let's just remind ourselves something. This is called the gospel of Mark. The purpose of this book was twofold. Number one, to encourage the believers in particular in Rome that were under the pressure of persecution. They were suffering. Number two, it was to be an evangelistic book that someone could read quickly. That's why Mark is short and just moves fast, fast, fast. And so the, 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 the point here is this then, as Mark is unfolding this gospel, communicating that Jesus is the Son of God, he's like, Psh, I want you to hear this. I want you to hear what's being said, and I want to press you to see that you can respond to the gospel even now. You don't have to wait till the end of the book. I want to push this point home. So what we have here is really an evangelistic text in an evangelistic book. And so Mark is, is really writing this to, to promote and to give focus and attention to either unbelievers to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and to take, a, take advantage of the opportunity before them, 
or secondly, to encourage those who are already followers of Christ in the suffering and persecution that they're experiencing, um, in the hostile environment that they're in, to realize that this is just part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Now, we will have three kind of questions or three ways we want to approach this text. First of all, let's look at what I'm calling a question of gospel identity. This is the section where it's, you know, this, this is who people think that Jesus is. But notice what we're struck with here at the beginning is this, is that the, the text tells us that the news about Jesus reached the ears of King Herod. Now, you're talking about one man who has 12 followers who's been doing ministry in Galilee. And, and, and Herod, who's the king, hears about this. Now, you've probably heard of Herod before, the Herods, a very, very um, bloody family, um, a very self-serving family, cutthroat, um, pleasure-seeking. And there are really two Herods in particular in the Gospels that we give our attention to. There's Herod the Great, who is the Herod that is present when Jesus is born, usually the, the, the first couple of chapters that deal with the birth of Jesus in, in the other Gospels, that's Herod the Great. But then there's also Herod Antipas, and he primarily is the, the, the Herod that we see in, in, in the rest of the Gospel uh, account after the birth of Jesus. And Herod Antipas is one of the sons of Herod the Great. Um, there is Archelaus, who was mentioned briefly in Matthew 2.22, but um, he isn't around for a while. Now, King Herod heard about the miracles that were being performed. He heard about the disciples who were doing these things. And, and, and it's remarkable when you think about it. That just, just the news of what Jesus is doing or what the disciples is doing is, is actually getting to the ears of the king. Just these small group of people. And yet they're having such an impact. So just notice here that Jesus' reputation is growing. Look at verse 14. Some said John the Baptist, talking about who is Jesus, that he's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. So this news spread. It wasn't just localized in Galilee. It wasn't just in Jerusalem, but now it was kind of national news. This news about Jesus, if it was happening today, would be on the evening news. I mean, it would, it would be um, on talk radio. It would be on the front page of the newspaper. Um, Anderson Cooper and Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity would be fighting to get Jesus on their shows. Tweets would be going out, it's Elijah, or it's, it's one of the prophets, or it's John the Baptist. Facebook posts would be, would be um, put on the internet. Internet polls would be out there saying, this is who we think it is. And they're saying, it's one of those three. And with all those theories floating around, the story hones in on one man who is convinced that he knows the truth about who this person is. And here we see Herod's tormented conscience. You see, he, he is in, with no doubt who Jesus is. Others can theorize all they want. It might be Elijah, it might be one of the prophets, but he knows. 
But this is John the Baptist who was risen from the dead. Verse 14, but when Herod heard of it, sorry, verse 16, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So he's hearing this. And, and, and this is all the result of his conscience being tormented about what he had done in his past. He is plagued by this news. And he comes to this conclusion because of his personal interaction that resulted with John's execution. Now, friends, I, I think, I don't think that it's too far-fetched to say that there are some people sitting in this room today who are plagued by things that have happened in their past. And maybe you don't talk about it with other people, but when you lay your head on the pillow at night and you want to get to sleep, but that, that thought comes to you, you're, you're reminded of things that have taken place and, and you are gripped by them. There are triggers that, that, that bring memories to, uh, to your, your mind and, and, and you dwell on them. Maybe you can relate to some of these people. They're fictional people, but, but they're people that I think would, would help us understand some of the struggles that people face. There's Pamela, and she's sitting in her pastor's office, and she confesses that she had two abortions when she was in college. Now, this is all before she became a Christian. And after she became a Christian, she understood forgiveness, and she applied that forgiveness to her, but, but she still struggles with her guilt. And she dwells on that guilt. And that guilt has interfered with her relationships with others, in particular between her and her spouse. And then there's John. John is a retired senior citizen who's been active in the church all his life, but he is still plagued with a sexual indiscretion that took place when he was a teenager over 60 years ago. Now, from a theological standpoint, he knows, he knows that he was forgiven because he had confessed his sin numerous times to the Lord, yet he still struggles with self-condemnation. How could I have done that? And then there's Jerry. He's an entrepreneur in his 30s, but he hates to go to the mail because he owns his own business, and his business was struggling financially for a while, and so uh, one year, uh, as he was doing his taxes, he deliberately left some things off of his taxes, and ever since that day, he has been plagued with this idea that I don't want to go to the mail because I might go to the mail, and there might be an envelope there from the government saying, you're going to need to pay up. He is still plagued by this thought. And, and even though his business now is going well, he, he knows in his heart that he really needs to be honest and truthful. But what would the consequences be if I were to be honest and truthful now? It seems like God is blessing the business, but he knows. And he's plagued with this thought and see, friends, this, these are all examples of, of a conscience or a heart that is in torment because it's not resting in the, the forgiveness or the truth that God gives to his children. All these illustrations, in all of them, there's battle going on. 
And what everyone is looking for is peace from the things that they have done in the past. Can you relate to that? I mean, whatever your story is, whatever, whatever that thing is, there probably is for all of us sometimes when we think back into our past, we're like, you know, I, that, was, that was awful. Oh, man, how did I do that? And you can begin to revisit and regurgitate all that stuff up. And sometimes we just suppress it rather than allowing God and his truth to, to feed us. We try and escape through activities and, and vices and friends. We, we put on a good face sometimes. Sometimes we seek to be responsible with our lives, but we're still haunted. And so just for a moment here this morning, let's just talk about something that we don't often talk about, and that is this. We talk about a conscience, but we really don't define it and don't give clarity to it. So what is this conscience then that Herod was struggling with and that we also struggle with? Let's think through that a little bit. I want to use two illustrations maybe to, to think through that. First of all, uh, in 1984... Um, uh, an Avianca Airlines jet crashed in Spain, and the investigators studying the accident found the black box. And when they listened to the recording on the black box, they were surprised to find that before the plane impacted the mountain and everyone was killed, that there was a synthesized voice from the plane's automatic warning system that told the crew repeatedly in English, pull up, pull up pull up. And then they heard on the recording the pilot saying to that system, shut up, gringo. And the plane goes plowing into a mountain. Or how about my old Pontiac T-1000? If you have no idea what a Pontiac T-1000 is, it's an old Chevette. And if you don't know what a Chevette is, it's okay, <laughs> because it's like the cheapest, worst car that there ever was, right? Um, the Chevette was bad, then Pontiac decided we want to make one just like that. Um, and I had one that um, barely worked. I mean, literally, I would put the, the pedal to the metal, and it would go like 20 miles an hour, lots of smoke. Um, uh, uh, the, there wasn't road rage back then, but I think maybe I created it. I don't know, something along those lines. And would you know, because it was such a, 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 um, a, a valued product, um, it, it didn't have any numerical dials at all. It just had, like, dashboard lights, right? And there was this light that kept on coming on. And, and sometimes it would come on, and I would take it in, and there was like, we don't know what it is. There's nothing going on here. Okay. So then it would come on again. And you know how I, I would deal with that? On the, on the dashboard, if I bang my dashboard hard enough, the light would go off. It's like, that's good. And the car would continue to drive. And it kept on doing that for a while until one day the light came on. And I thought, eh, it's been on before. I tried banging the dashboard, but it didn't turn the light off. But I thought, hey, it's never meant anything before. It won't mean anything today. Um, except that the car ended up seizing. I hadn't been putting oil in the engine, okay? <laughs> it was an oil light. I was really disappointed that that car died on me that day. <laughs> but you understand, I'm trying to give these illustrations to let you know that, that, that here we have the conscience. The conscience is like that, that um, navigation system that's saying, pull up, pull up. It knows that danger is coming. It is like that dashboard light that's saying, warning, warning, warning. The question is whether or not we are going to allow 
that conscience actually to speak to us and respond to it in the right way. Kevin DeYoung um, gives a good definition, I think, of the conscience. It's very, very simple. It's very basic. He says, the conscience is the moral faculty within human beings that assesses what is good and what is bad. So the ability to discern between what is good and what is bad comes from this conscience. It's something that is written in the, on the heart of every person. It is a gift from God to us. And you might want to think about the conscience as kind of like a, an internal thermometer that has like a gauge on the top and a gauge on the bottom. That conscience, however, is fashioned and shaped by ideas, cultural ideas, social ideas, family ideas, um, what comes out of Hollywood, political ideas, music you might be listening to. And so you either adjust the conscience based on how you're shaping it. Now, for believers, what is supposed to shape our conscience is the Holy Spirit speaking to us through his word so that the gauges are in the right place. And what happens with your conscience is that when you violate one of those gauges, you have this thing go off, and it's guilt. So guilt is the violation of conscience that comes um, when, you, when you step, or step over those bounds. Now, if, if your conscience is being fashioned and shaped by the word of God, that guilt is a good thing because that guilt is telling you, ah, 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 warning, there's something I need to do here. If it's fashioned and shaped by the world, it is very likely that that conscience um, could be giving you guilt about things that you shouldn't be you know, having guilt about, right? I mean, when was the last time you had a French fry? See, some of you are feeling guilty right now. I just mentioned that, right? In God's eyes, it's okay for you to have a French fry. But in certain circles, oh, boy, you better not have a French fry. Especially if you're doing CrossFit. I mean, you're like in really bad, bad place with a French fry, right? Now, that would not be biblical guilt. That would be a societal guilt that is put on you. You get what I'm saying here? The word of God is what, what is, uh, God uses to fashion and shape that guilt. Now, here we have Herod. And Herod is feeling guilty. His conscience is tormented. We know the answer to the question, who is this Jesus? We know it's not John the Baptist. We know it's not Elijah. We know it's not another one of the prophets. We know, because Mark has revealed it to us, that this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But Herod, because of his conscience is plagued by the thought that this is John the Baptist risen from the dead. Okay? So my question to you is this. When you lay your head down on the pillow at night, what is nagging at your conscience? What is tormenting you? And what are you doing about it? Now, let's move into the flashback story here. The question of gospel opportunity. What we have here is very likely one of Peter's sermons. Mark inserts the story for a purpose. Now remember, Mark is gathering his information from Peter's material. Okay? And that's why I say this is very likely one of the sermons of the early church and very possibly one of Peter's sermons that he, he now places in this context for a reason. 
It's an evangelistic story that is full of opportunity. But it also reveals for us the various aspects of man's consciences. So first of all, we want to think, want to think about the opportunity for John. That would be John the Baptist. And I'm saying that he has a spiritual conscience. And I want you to think through this with me. Look at verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herod and his now wife Herodias had orchestrated and manipulated their lives so that they could be married. Right? Herodias was married to Philip. And when Herod was in Rome, he met Herodias, and Herodias ends up divorcing her husband, and Herod had to jilt his wife so that they could be together. Now, please understand, not only was that a problem in society, but that was also a problem with the law of God. It violated God's law, and that's what we find. John the Baptist Knowing his responsibility as a prophet, a God-given responsibility to speak God's truth into not only a community or a culture, but in particular to the leadership of that day, is not thwarted by who it is that he's speaking about. And he goes to Herod, and he speaks very clearly and boldly, just as we say there, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And we're told, because of Herodias, that he then is arrested and he is put in jail. John had the opportunity before him, placed there by God, and he's driven by a sense of spiritual conscience that motivated him to use his prophetic gift to speak in such a way to confront the sin that was before him. Well, that's what prophets do. That's what God has called prophets to do many of the time. But friends, notice this. There is nothing in this text that paints John as an arrogant, obnoxious prude hurling insults with the word. How do we know that to be the case? We know that to be the case because, in particular, of how Herod responds to John. Herod enjoys listening to him. Okay? And speaking boldly about God against sin does not mean that we have to be rude. Does not mean that we have to be obnoxious. Now, the role of, um, of a prophet is quite different than maybe what we would experience today. The, 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 the closest equivalent we would have today would be a pastor teacher, someone like me who is using the gift of preaching to encourage and equip the saints with the truth of God's word. But we all have a responsibility to speak God's truth among those who are lost. And so this was an opportunity that John had, but it's also an opportunity that we have. And here's the lesson that we can learn from John's encounter with Herod. Our manner in sharing the gospel of Jesus must not undermine or betray our message of that gospel. The manner by which we share the gospel must not undermine or betray that gospel. Now, does that make sense to you? I mean, here you are trying to share the gospel with someone. And, you know, this has happened in evangelistic contexts. I've seen it happen before. And, and someone who's a believer trying to be passionate says, Well, yeah, you're going to hell! 
Now, how is that going to actually really be an encouragement to those people? There may be a truth. I mean, it may be true. If you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the end result is you're going to end up in hell. But there's a way you go about sharing that truth. You don't do it with anger and bitterness. You do it with humility and concern and compassion. The manner in which we actually share the gospel is important. We don't want it to betray the message of the gospel. So as God has given you opportunity to speak into other people's lives, speak in such a way where you're, you're sharing the truth of God with love and compassion. And in your mind's eye, however, see them in their bondage, but be patient with them. Love them regardless of how they might respond. That's the opportunity that John had. He had the opportunity he responded because of his conscience in a way that glorified God. Secondly, the opportunity, um, the opportunity for Herod. And I'm calling here uh, Herod as one who had a stirred conscience. Here's what we're told. He listened to John. He feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. Uh, a little side note there. Character does matter. He, he kept him safe. He heard him gladly, even though he was perplexed. So what is it that drew Herod, the king, living in luxury and in the palace to listen to John, the desert-dwelling prophet? What drew him to that? Maybe it was the fact that John was a straight shooter. Don't you like people that just, just tell you the truth? Stop messing around. Just get down. Tell me what the truth is, all right? I want to get there. You appreciate that. Certainly, John was willing to, 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 to speak the truth. He wasn't willing simply to be a yes man. Maybe it was the fact that, that he was stirred by John's preaching, and he just wanted, a, he wanted a, you know, to be better. He wanted some self-improvement. And maybe he even applied some, some things in his life. Maybe he, he was treating others with kindness more. Maybe he set someone free, or, or he hugged his children, or... Uh, gave a beggar some money or something like that. We, we don't know. What we do know, however, is this. We know um, is that although Herod liked listening to John, there were some obstacles in his path that stood in the way of him following through with believing all that John was saying. John, I'm sure, was not just talking about, you know, chariot races or the, you know, any you know, political climate. He was speaking about God and what God said about what was going on in Herod's life. I mean, can you imagine Herod going down and listening to John? The kind of things that John would be saying? And he enjoyed it. He liked it. But he never stepped over the threshold of true belief in what John was saying. And so we want to consider five obstacles that flow out of this, um, this, this text that, that would help us consider how we respond then to the gospel as it's being presented. Like I said, this is very much an evangelistic story. And the first problem or the first obstacle that, that he's coming up against is the obstacle of his sin. Oh, he likes hearing from John. John has confronted him about his sin, but nowhere do we see in any of the record here Herod actually saying, John, you know what? You're right. 
I need to confess that sin. I need to separate from or, or divorce uh, my present wife or whatever it is that needs to be done to unmake the mess of the mess that now I've created. There's no acknowledgement of that. There's no humility at all. His sin was still there, and it was an obstacle. And friends, that is true with us too. Sin is an obstacle many times of us coming to Christ and, and saying, you know what, I am humbly placing myself under your authority as my master. And the reason is because there are some sins that we just want to keep and we want to hold on to. And friends, sin is an obstacle. Secondly, there's the problem of peers. Did you notice how Mark carefully tells us who comes to this party? Now, we know that he's the king, okay? But in the passage, it tells us that the nobles were there, the military commanders, the leading men of Galilee. This was the societal and political cream of the crop. These were the guys that Herod wanted to impress. What they thought mattered to him. And friends, this is not just something that is unique to our high school years when it comes to peer pressure. This is true in life. When you go into work, when you go to college, there's always going to be this concern about what other people think about you. In particular, if you are going to step away from your sin and into a relationship with Christ, what are they going to say? What are they going to think? How will they respond? How will I be viewed by these other people? Friends, peer pressure is still present. And when it comes to the gospel, it is an obstacle. It's a hindrance. The third thing is this, the problem of pride. The problem of pride. Or you might want to say saving faith. I'm referring here to the oath that he made. Now, there's a sense in which he really didn't know what he was saying. It says, in speaking to Salome here, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. Now, the reality is that statement is a figure of speech. And here's why. He actually was not the king in the, in the land. He was what was called a tetrarch. And a tetrarch is a puppet king. He had no land to give her. So when he says, I will give you up to half of my land. Well, I don't actually have any land, by the way. Just want you to know that. But it was an expression that says, I just want to bless you. And, and understand this. He was not motivated because he was thinking clearly at this point in time. He was motivated because he had been moved sensually by the dancing of Salome. He sat there mesmerized. Oh, and all the other guys are watching. Oh, and he's responding saying, I will give you half of anything I have. In other words, he was making an oath. But it wasn't an oath that he actually could fulfill and make. But it was still an oath. And he wasn't willing to say that I was wrong in making that oath. Friends, there are times when we make promises that we should not make. And because of pride, we don't exercise wisdom and undo that promise. Now hear this. It's not wrong to break a promise that was wrong in the first place to make. Christian ethics would say that. 
It's not wrong to break a promise that was wrong in the first place to make. What's hard is once you've made a promise and you know that it was wrong for you to make that promise, society would say, well, you made the promise, so you get to keep it. God would say, don't be a fool. Admit the fact that the promise that you made, you shouldn't have made. Be humble. Be honest. Be truthful. Acknowledge the fact that you have been foolish. I'm going to call myself a fool. Well, if you acted like a fool, be humble enough to say that I was a fool. In Herod's case, he was moved to make this promise because of the essential feelings. And as a result... Um, well, that resulted ultimately in, in John's death, didn't it? Some people are moved by the gospel and want to move forward with it, but because of pride, they don't press on and they're unwilling to say, I was wrong. If you would turn with me to, to, to the gospel of John in chapter 12, I want to show you something here. This speaks to both the, the peer pressure as well as the pride Jesus has been listen, has been, well, I said the Jews have been listening to Jesus' words here, and we find in John 12 and verse 42 and 43 these words, and they're really sad words. These people have had the opportunity to listen to Jesus teach, and notice what it says. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. You hear that? They, they didn't want to be put out. They didn't want to be thought, oh, we were, we're outsiders and stuff like that. No. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's peer pressure and that's pride. And friends, it's an obstacle to the gospel. And Herod loved the favor of man rather than being willing to say, I was wrong to make that promise. It was foolish of me. It was mistaken. And so he followed through with the oath that he made. The fourth Obstacle, the problem of what I'm calling relationships, the problem of relationships. And in particular, I'm talking here about Herodias. The reality is, those who are closest to us have an enormous influence over us. There's a sense in which they have a rightful claim to, to speak into our lives, to be honest with us. So we're talking about spouses and children and parents. They have the right to speak, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are always right in what they speak. And here we have Herodias. And Herodias really ultimately is the one who is telling Herod to put John in jail. Notice it said, for Herodias' sake. Now, as we've gone through Mark, if you remember Mark chapter 3, verse 31, we have this encounter where 
Jesus is teaching, and it says in verse 31 and following, and his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they said to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, why are my mother and my brothers, or who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and mother. And later in Jesus' teaching, in Luke chapter 14, in verse 26 in particular, Jesus says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, by the word hate, he doesn't mean hate in the sense of, I hate you, but in the sense of, I am devoted to Christ so much more than I am my family that it appears to others like I am not concerned about my family. That doesn't mean neglect your family. It means actually love your family, but you're saying, I am devoted to Christ above everyone else. This problem with relationships hinders then some from actually stepping through the threshold and embracing the gospel because they're concerned about what their family is going to think. And the family might be saying a lot of things already. What do you mean you're going to that church? What do you mean you're reading that Bible? What are you doing with all those crazy people? And yet, you know that the Lord is drawing you. And yet, you're hindered by the obstacle of family. The last one here is the problem of time. There is never enough time for spiritual things. This is true I just want you to think about it this way. You know, the, the, the businessman who works in San Francisco, he is making decisions, and he has to make decisions quickly. There's no time for sitting around. The general on the battlefield, he has to make decisions quickly. He doesn't have time to sit around and, and just kind of say, oh, we'll see what happens tomorrow. Uh, the man who's flying through the air with a parachute on his back doesn't have time to say, well, I'm just going to enjoy the flight. He's got to pull the parachute. There's a decision that needs to be made. They act immediately because they know they have no time to wait. And Herod thought that he had time, in particular time with John. He thought he'd be able to go back and, and talk to him some more and listen some more to what he has to say because he did enjoy it. But the problem of time is a failure to grasp that the decision before us can be taken out of our hands. I'll think about it later. I'll follow Christ when I get older. I, I want to live my life now when I'm done with college or maybe when I'm, I'm, you know, a few years into this marriage thing, we'll get down to God, especially when the kids come, because we want the kids to grow up with, a, a, you know, an understanding of who God is. But friends, there are no guarantees. You can't play around with time. Herod would, at a later date, have the opportunity to speak to Jesus. And, and, and listen to what happens in this passage. This is Luke 23, 8 and 9. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length. But he, that's Jesus, made no answer. Silence. Herod you had your opportunity. 
See, Herod would meet Jesus the first time, and Herod would be a judge. Herod is going to meet Jesus a second time, but this time, Jesus will be the judge. Far too many people who've had the opportunity to hear the gospel have said in their hearts, not today, another time, maybe in a while, but each day that they're alive, they are spending it on borrowed time. They need to hear the words of Isaiah in chapter 55, verse 6. It says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Now, friends, I... I know most of you are regular gateway people, and we have some people visiting with us today, but I am never under the assumption that we're all a gathered group of believers here. We always have to preach, we always have to teach, we always have to understand that there may be some people who either are coming, they're, they're considering, they're hearing the gospel, and, and the gospel then needs to be proclaimed as we're opening up his word and walking through it. That's what Mark is doing. He wants the gospel to go out. What obstacle is hindering you from bowing the knee to Jesus? and say, please forgive me for my sin. You died on the cross to pay for my sin. You bore the wrath of God on my behalf. Forgive me. Welcome me into your family. I humble myself in such a way that you are my Lord and Master now. That's what Mark is pushing his readers to do. That's the opportunity that Herod had. Now we have the opportunity that Herodias had. But see, Herodias has a seared conscience. She's the one that wanted John the Baptist in jail. She isn't moved by her conscience, by what John has been saying in his confrontation about their relationship. Her conscience is seared, and her decision is made. I want John dead. And the only reason that John is not dead is because of her husband who likes to talk to him. And then we find an opportunity comes to celebrate Herod's birthday. And she knows who's going to be there. She knows the kind of pressure he's going to be under. She knows what she can do to manipulate the situation. And her plan works perfectly, seamlessly. She's ruthless. She's evil. She's brutal, even in involving her daughter in this way in her plan. But this is all the fruit of a seared conscience. It says, if you get the chance to take it, take it without regard for the consequences or the impact it's going to have on others. Enjoy your triumph while you can. And for a seared conscience, there is no room to hear from God. There is no room to, to contemplate the word of God. And you probably know people like that. You bring up the things of God, and they're like, Psh, I don't want to hear it. They don't even want to be thoughtful about it. Nope. I don't want God in my life. I don't want your Christianity in my life. Just be quiet about that. There's a, a seared conscience. And then there's an opportunity that I think is one of the more beautiful opportunities in this story. It's an opportunity for John's disciples 
And what do they do? We find them in verse 29. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and they laid it in a tomb. They, they are the decent ones in this story. The disciples of John, they're, they're like the valiant men of Gilead. You may remember the story. Saul and Jonathan die in battle, and their bodies are taken and put on display in a horrible way. And the men of Gilead, who had been saved by Saul years ago, valiantly and in the middle of the night run for hours get to the city where the, the bodies are displayed on the walls. They sneak up there, they get the bodies, they take them back, and they bury them in a respectful way because Saul is a king and Jonathan is a prince. These disciples of John are, are like Joseph of Arimathea who would ultimately bury Jesus in his tomb. See, John's disciple, they risked their own lives and the wrath of Herod in order to honor their leader. This is a, a loyal conscience. But a loyalty to their master who has been teaching them, who has died for being faithful to do what God has called them to do, to proclaim the gospel and to, to call for repentance and to confront sin. And they take care of his headless body, a gruesome task, but one of respect and honor, no matter the cost. Now, what's interesting is that there are parallels between what's going on here and what happens to Jesus. John is a forerunner of Jesus' message and preaching, right? He comes at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark in particular, and he is proclaiming this message of repentance just like Jesus is going to come and, and preach a message of repentance. But John is also a forerunner of Jesus' death. He's foreshadowing what yet is going to take place in the life of Jesus. Both John and Jesus are executed by political tyrants who fear them but vacillate and finally succumb to social pressure. One being Herod, of course, the other one being Pilate. Herod is the result of Herodias' manipulation. Pilate gives in to the cries of the mob, crucify him, crucify him. Both John and Jesus die as victims of political corruption. And both die as righteous men. This is all preparing the reader for what is yet to happen. We want to move a little bit here to what I'm calling a question of gospel reality, and then we'll kind of tie all this together. Here's the gospel reality, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. You're just like, well, how in the world did these things all fit together? The fact that Mark inserts the execution of John the Baptist in the context of sending out his disciples and then their return to him forces us to consider what John's death means for the disciples and for the mission that they have with Jesus. The follower of Christ, hear this, will 
well, may face times of rejection, persecution, imprisonment, and ultimately death. And that's the point here. Disciples and readers of Mark's gospel, do you understand the cost that is necessary, that is possible for you to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? It may mean your death. And as the gospel continues to unfold, Jesus will soon be talking about his own death. And then he'll be talking about the disciples, that they must take up their cross and follow him. And so the purpose of this text is to give reality to what all of God's followers will face if they're to follow Jesus Christ. What does Jesus say clearly to his disciples? John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that what? It had hated me before it hated you. You're a simple, you know, you're simply mini-me's, right? You are reflecting me as you are out there um, as my disciples. Paul echoes that truth in speaking to Timothy in his last letter, these, his final words. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be not maybe, will be persecuted. It's a reality, friends. It's just a reality. So let's bring this down to a close. Some concluding thoughts here. I'm sorry. You hopefully got all that. What is the ultimate cost? This text actually gives us two answers. The first ultimate cost is the martyrdom or martyrdom death of a follower of Christ. And our example here is John. And as Mark is writing this gospel, he's, he's wanting his, his readers to recognize that this may be you. And if it is you, understand this is all part of God's plan and this is one of the ways that God's children will suffer. But the other ultimate cost is what I'm calling the death of conscience. I want you to think about that. When your conscience is so dead to God's truth, there's a cost. And it's not a good cost. Is it a hopeless cause? No. We actually sang a song about that. Can't remember the words exactly. But as we were seeing, I was like, that's exactly what's going on in this passage. The hardness in our heart can still be penetrated by the gospel and the Holy Spirit working his will in our hearts. But the reality of a seared conscience is death of conscience. That I will not hear anymore the truth that God wants to reveal to me. That is a sober reality, friends. Now, what do we need to do with our guilty consciences. We're speaking here about being believers, followers of Christ. And I want to draw your attention, first of all, to two passages in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 9 
in Hebrews 10. But both of these passages talk about appropriating the blood of Christ, appropriating what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross so that by virtue of appropriating what Jesus Christ has done on the cross in our lives, we no longer have to be tormented in our conscience. That is the whole point of the gospel. That is the point of the cross. But let's listen to what these passages say. I have them up on the screen if you want to follow along or in your Bibles. It says this, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our what? Our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We need the gospel. You struggle with your conscience. You need to preach the gospel to yourself. You need to remind yourself what Jesus Christ did for you. He didn't just die so you could get a ticket to heaven. He died so that one of the things that will take place is your conscience would be clear. Hebrews 10 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So that goes along really uh, with, with both, but also the next one, and that is this. Allow the word of God to wash you. We need to be daily just allowing the word of God to be affecting our conscience, shaping it, and as, as the guilt markers go off, saying, God, how do you want me to cleanse my heart? And we allow the word of God to be the mechanism to do that. Ephesians 5.26 is that he might sanctify her, talking about the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. This is why we need to be in the word. This is why the word of God must be at work in us. One of the aspects is to affect our conscience. And then the last thing is this. Believe in the promises of God. God does not make promises that need to be retracted. We may. <laughs> God does not. And so if that is true, then we need to believe that if God says, you are forgiven, I've cast your sin as far as the east is from the west, or I will remember your sin no more, what does he mean? He means, I've cast your sin as far as the east is from the west, I will remember your sin no more. He's no longer then holding it against you. He says you're forgiven. That means you're forgiven. And sometimes we just simply don't want to believe what God has promised to be true. And what we need to do to affect our consciences is to believe what he says is true. That is what we're called to, friends. We're called to take advantage of the opportunity that God has given us to live our lives with a conscience that is clear and ultimately to be ready to give the ultimate cost our lives as God's children, living out our lives for his glory. Lord, help us today as we consider these words, as we consider the example of, of John in the context of of Herod and Lord, just the way Mark is orchestrating these things in his gospel to teach us, the readers and the ones who are the recipients of this gospel, to live our lives in such a way to, to recognize that, 
that persecution, imprisonment, suffering, and ultimately death because of our faith can often be a reality. And even, Lord, as we press further in that, the importance of having a conscience that is clear, the importance of being willing to listen to you and to take you, Lord, and as a God who wants our best and and therefore listening and being obedient to what you say because we know that through that obedience we will find help in those areas of struggle that we have. And Lord, I pray for the people that are gathered here today, Lord, who, who maybe in the quietness of their heart are struggling with issues in their past, they're wrestling, and Lord, they may be in bondage to those things. Lord, would you give freedom because of your forgiveness, because of the gospel. We ask in your precious holy name, amen.